Can there be better joy than to be together on the first of the week as he's called us to, to remember the abundance of his goodness toward us? I appreciate the songs we've just sung, the thinking through his sacrifice and worshiping him in response to that and remembering him, his body and his blood that were given for us. We're grateful for visitors with us uh, in presence here personally and also online. We're thankful for uh, your interest in the things of God. It's an encouragement to us and we want to help encourage you in that as well. I invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. The reading that was done earlier there in verses 13 through 19. We'll spend most of our time in this text today. Um, very soon we're going to begin looking at personal evangelism here as a congregation. As soon as we finish looking at our lessons on leadership. And uh, it's interesting to sort of note uh, how Jesus prepared these men to be representatives of him as they went out with this good news that he was bringing and establishing. And so we're in Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read again. We're in, I'm in the New King James Version, uh, but I'm going to read again verses 13 through 19 to keep those fresh before our eyes. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. He went up on the mountain and called to those he himself wanted. As Jesus was teaching, and Mark tells us earlier in the chapter in verses 7 and 8, that a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. He had a lot of people following him early on. He's doing these great miracles. He's teaching things that seem to have a certain authority that these people have not been used to hearing from the scribes. And they're intrigued by what he's doing. There are varied reactions to what he was teaching. Mark records several of those for us. In chapter 1, verse 22, as he's teaching in the, the synagogue in Capernaum, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In verse 37, after he'd spent an afternoon healing and casting out demons, Peter and the others were seeking for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus says, well, let's go somewhere else so I can teach there as well. That's what I came to do. In chapter 2 and verse 5, there are four men who carry a paralyzed man up onto the roof. And they take the tiles off the house and they lower this man down before Jesus. And Jesus sees that and seeing their faith, he forgave the man's sins. But he saw how faithful they were to get to him. In chapter 2 and verse 16 of Mark, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. By chapter 3, because of the mobs that are around him in verse 21, his own family says he's out of his mind. And they've gone to try to bring him home and calm him down. And we also see that the religious leadership has a, uh, a thing that they're saying about him, that he has Beelzebub, and by the rule of the demons, he casts out demons. There is a varied response to who this man must be, but you can't deny that the multitudes were intrigued and they're following behind him. Most people didn't really know what to think about him, but there were some who just were always near. They were following Jesus more closely all around Galilee. They had heard what he said. They were intrigued by it. They came back to hear more. 
They investigated a little bit further the things he was saying. They heard and came back for clarification. They came back with honest questions. And Jesus called this group to himself. It's a smaller group from within the multitude. And then from that group, he even separated a smaller group that we know as the apostles, and that's the selection we're looking at in verses 13 and following here. So one of the first questions that might come to mind is, why did he call them? In fact, it's interesting, in our class this morning, we dealt with this text, and I've taught this text for a long time, and it's interesting the responses I get. We'll read the text together, and I'll say, what are we told about why Jesus called them in verses 14 and 15? Almost always the first response is to cast out demons and to have power over sickness. Almost always that's the response I get when I'm studying this with people who don't have a lot of uh, habit of reading the Bible very well. Almost always when I study with brethren this text, the response is, send them out to preach. (laughs) But as we noticed in our class this morning, that's not the first reason we see in the text. He called them that they might be with him. He is preparing them for going out and preaching. He's preparing them for this ministry that's going to involve the confirmation of the word through these miracles that will be present, the healing and the casting out of demons. But he called them that they might be with him. It's amazing to think about the Son of God desiring us to be with him. (laughs) What a blessing that is. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, Jesus told the woman at the well that God is seeking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. God desires communion, desires fellowship with us. In John 14, verses 1 through 3, as Jesus has a private moment with the apostles, this is uh, in the setting of the the Last Supper. This is before he's going to go out to be crucified, and he has these intimate conversations. And he looks at them and he says in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then in chapter 15, we're not going to read verses 1 through 7 there, but he talks about the importance of their abiding in him. He wants them to be with him, and they need to be in him, completely involved, abiding in what he's teaching and what he's doing. That is Jesus' desire. It's the most important. It is the first step. If we are going to serve the Lord, we need to be with the Lord. It won't be until Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, more than a year later, that Jesus actually sends them out for this preaching. He's going to spend a year training them, allowing them to get to be with him, to know him, to understand his character, to see how he teaches, to see how he interacts with people. They're going to be training alongside him for about a year before they finally go out in Mark chapter 6. Jesus wanted them to be together. If they're going to be able to preach his message, they needed to know him and needed to know what he's teaching. And that's the same for us. If we are interested in sharing Jesus with others, we can only do that as much as we've allowed him to share himself with us. We've got to be with him. That's the first and most important thing. Going back to the text in Mark 13, though, he wanted them to be with him that he might send them out to preach. That was his design. He had brought them near so he could prepare them so they could send them out. It's interesting to think about the order of things here. Jesus sent them out to preach when we get to chapter 6. This is a pattern for him and his teaching. In fact, he came forth from the Father. He didn't do his preaching from heaven. The message has been revealed through the Old Testament from heaven. But Jesus came 
to His people. He came to seek those who were lost. He was sent out from the Father. And now He's sending people out to do His work as well. You think about the uh, the Great Commission as it's laid out for us in Matthew 28, 19. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, he sent them out. In Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. In Luke 24, preach repentance and remission of sins beginning in Jerusalem, but preaching to the ends of the earth. That's really what Luke records for us in the book of Acts. So this is Jesus' pattern and Jesus' plan, but so many of us have the idea that if we just build a nice building, if we have enough things that are attractive, people will just come to us. Now certainly Jesus says we ought to be a beacon. We ought to be a light on a hill individually. We ought to be showing forth the grace and the glory of God so that people can see Him working through us and they would desire. And as Peter says, we'd be ready to have a defense when they ask us, what about this hope that you have? And he'd be ready for that. But Jesus says... Go out. <laughs> Go out and teach them. Don't wait for them to come. I want you to think about this. This is an extreme thing to think about, but I want uh, this extreme example. But what if all of us would have had to go to Jerusalem to hear the message? <laughs> How many of us have ever been to Jerusalem? How many of us would be Christians today if what had to happen for us to hear the gospel, well, we had to go where it was? <laughs> That's not the way it was. Jesus from Jerusalem sent them out to the ends of the earth. And we can be thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. I wasn't anywhere near my home, anywhere near a church when I heard the gospel for the first time. And when I began to investigate it, I'm so thankful that God had sent someone out to me. And we need to be thinking of going out as we teach. And the second thing we see is that he sent them out to preach. For this, they're going to need his message. They're going to need to know what it is that they're supposed to be teaching. He didn't send them out to sell things, didn't send them out to advertise. Sometimes they went out and said, come and see. But then once they had seen, they could say, here's what we've seen. Look at 1 John. <laughs> what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you. John had been with him all of that time. And so we're to go out and teach. And we're really not sent out to coerce people. Paul did speak in a way that people were convinced. We ought to understand that the message is convincing. But we're not trying to strong arm or advertise and make things look better than they are, we're sent out to teach. At least Jesus is sending them out here to teach the gospel. And you'll notice that also in the accounts in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24. What they were sent out to preach is the gospel to every creature under heaven. In Mark, Matthew 28, 20, he said, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. That's the gospel. <laughs> and so... We see in Luke 24, preach repentance and remission of sins. That's the gospel. The message that ought to be going out is that people are lost and they need a Savior. And here is what the message is that he has sent. The message itself doesn't need our help. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. We need to trust the message and we need to share the message. That's what Jesus was preparing them to be able to do. And I think that'll show through in the lesson today as we look at these people that he's chosen. Finally, it does say in verse 15 that he had sent them out. I'm forgetting to keep up with my slides there. Uh, that he sent them out. It does say that he sent them out. Looks like it's not going forward here. Sorry. <clears throat> Maybe I should have been keeping up better. There we go. He sent them out that they might have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So the work that we see in the New Testament follows this distinct pattern. 
Like I said, it's usually the first one that people notice is the casting out demons. It's actually the last one on the list of the things that are done. The signs were a confirm, uh, a confirm, a confirmatory action. They were done at the end of everything typically. But the order we see here is be with Jesus, teach his message, confirm his message. That's what he was sending them out to do. That's really what Jesus had done in the synagogue where they were amazed at his teaching. He was there as God. He taught his message. They were astonished. And then this man with an, an unclean spirit was in the synagogue and he called out and Jesus cast the spirit out of him, confirming the power of his message. And then all through the book of Mark, we see over and over Jesus teaching and then he confirms his message with a sign. In fact, we'll, we'll look at, at Mark chapter 16. We've mentioned this a couple of times. I want to read the text to you. Notice the order that Jesus is, is sending them out. He said to them, this is Mark 16, 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out, as they were told to do, and preached everywhere, as they were told to do, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. They were with Jesus. They were sent out to preach. They did that, and the Lord confirmed what they were doing through the signs that accompanied those who were believing. This is the pattern we see all through uh, the New Testament. Well, notice, however, not all of Jesus' disciples have this special ability. There were some who did. The apostles did, some others. But it was something Jesus had reserved for a select group of people who had a role to fulfill in confirming the gospel as it was first being sent out early on. It's not just some general ability that was given to all who believed in Christ. But it served a purpose, just as being with him served a purpose. Just as going out served a purpose. Just as the very message he gave served a purpose. So who are these people that he's called to himself in verses 16 through 19? It's a rather uh, long list. It's 12 names. We know these names fairly well. Some of our kids can probably uh, sing them to us uh, from memory. I can't do that yet. But think about the people that he's called. I think there's some lessons for us here, and I think it's beautiful to see what he's doing. You've got Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. There's interesting scholarship that indicates that the name Petra, Peter, that was given here, was never a personal name before Jesus used it here for Simon. He has begun a trend. There's a lot of Peters around now, but that was not a name that was in use in the first century. Jesus invented that name for Peter. What they would have heard as they would have read this is, Simon, I call you Rock. <laughs> and that was his name, Rock. Now, he certainly doesn't seem like a rock as we think about what we know about uh, Simon Peter. For example, there are lots of things we know about him. In Matthew 14, we have this great incident of his walking on the water. It's an amazing thing to think about. We'll start at verses 28 and 29. The incident here, Jesus has come to them walking on the water, and they're all afraid. Jesus says, be of good cheer, it is I do not be afraid. Verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
That's an amazing thing to think about, though. Can you imagine being in this little fishing boat that's going up and down on the waves, and there's somebody walking on the water that's already enough to freak you out, and then you recognize his voice, and you say, well, Lord, if it's you, I want to come out and walk where you are. He goes over the side of the boat. I wouldn't get out in a canoe in the middle of a river. He gets out of this boat in the middle of a storm, and he actually begins to walk on the waves until he begins to get afraid and falls in. But Peter started well. He just had some shakiness to him. In Mark chapter 8, we learn a little bit more about Peter. Mark chapter 8, he's the first one to declare that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is talking about all these different interpretations of who he might be. Who do you say that I am, he says. And they give him these ideas. But when he says to Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he warns him not to say anything to anybody. But then he begins to say, well, you know, the son of man is going to be crucified. It's going to be abused by the leadership and put on a cross. But after the third day, I'll come back to life. And that's when Peter says, not so, Lord. These things will never happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Again, Peter starts well. He thinks he sees who Jesus is, but then he tries to correct Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a temptation to me. In Mark chapter 14, we see Peter really leading the rally as he says, I will never deny you. Jesus had just said, you're all going to deny me. And Peter says, not me. And all the others say, none of us either. In verse 47, he's so insistent he's not going to deny Jesus that he pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear. One of the servants of the priests who have come to get Jesus. But then, verses 66 through 72 of Mark 14, he denies Jesus three times before finally going out and weeping when he realizes what he's done. (laughs) He will never deny him, but yet he did. We have Peter in Acts chapter 10 being the first one to preach and open the door to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. Yet in Galatians 2 and following, he was refusing to sit with the Gentiles when some brethren came from James and Paul had to withstand him to his face. Peter is courageous. Peter is ready to go, but he hasn't invested as much as he thinks he has, and he backs out sometimes. But fascinatingly, by the end of his life, when he writes 1 Peter chapter 5, knowing that his time is short, he says, I who am a fellow elder, (laughs) he has become a man of character. Jesus has taken a man like Simon and made him into a rock. Jesus was able to work with him. But you think about what we know about Peter in all of those instances. He wanted to be where Jesus was. He wasn't concerned at first about what it was going to cost. He just wanted to be where Jesus was. He learned later he had to count the cost. But every time he was willing to go where Jesus was. He was willing to defend Jesus no matter what it might cost him. He was willing to give his life. He pulled out a sword against a mob. This was a lot of people. He pulls out a sword and he's ready to go even if it means he has to die. And that's what he said. If I have to die, I will go with you. (laughs) But he wasn't ready for the spiritual battle yet. But Jesus took a man like Simon and made of him a rock. It's an encouragement for me. I see a lot of uh, Simon's bad characteristics in me, and I think about how much God is having to work to turn me into something better. What about the next two on the list? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, whom he gave the name Boanerges. The name rock is a lot better than this one. This means sons of thunder. 
We have uh, some examples of what they looked like and what they did. Look at Luke chapter 9, for example, verses 51 and 52. came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. That's some thunder. Can we call down thunder from heaven? Can we call down fire, perhaps lightning, the idea here to consume these people? Jesus said, you are sons of thunder to me. In Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 and following, we have this example where they're hearing Jesus talk about going away, but they begin to think about themselves. And they begin to, to decide they want some positions. They come to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is James and John. He says to them, What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> well, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And this causes a rift among the apostles. They see what these men are doing. They want these positions. They want to call down thunder. They're passionate but unwise. They want to be part of Jesus' inner circle for a long time. They want to sit up at the right and left hand. Even when he's being rejected by men, they've seen that. And yet they want to be there with him. They, along with Peter and Andrew, have this special intimate relationship with Jesus. They're often there. When the others are left out, so many times we see them together. The resurrection of Jairus' daughter. It's Peter, James, and John who have gone in. The transfiguration on the mountain as Jesus shows forth who he really is. Peter, James, and John are there. The garden when Jesus is praying just a short time later. Peter, James, and John will be the ones who are closest by. We see John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the way he describes himself. And at the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13, he's laying back on Jesus' chest. That's how close he was. And Peter says, ask him who he's talking about. <laughs> he just said somebody's going to betray him. John was close enough that Peter could get that message to him and they could maybe do that in secret. That's a very special relationship that Jesus had. In John chapter 19, perhaps we see even more how special this relationship was for both of them. John is amazed that Jesus could love him and he keeps calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. But John 19, verses 25 through 27, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. <laughs> Jesus places confidence in John to take care of, of his mother. We have very few words from the cross, but we have this loving picture of Jesus and John as he's speaking and talking to John about taking care of his mother. James in Acts chapter 12 in the first couple of verses there is put to death by the sword. He's the first apostle to be martyred. And then in 2 John and also in 3 John, John describes himself as the elder. He may be referring to his age. There's a lot of debate about that, but I believe he's referring to himself as one who is serving 
in this capacity perhaps as an elder. And so here is one, just as James, from whom Jesus used the thunder. He harnessed the thunder of the passion they had. They may have erred, but they learned from their mistakes and they put their passion to good use. They wanted to be where Jesus was, just as we saw was the case with Peter. If we go down the list a little further, we come across Andrew, going back to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to think about Andrew for just a moment. Some of these we don't have a whole lot of information about. But Andrew, if we look at John chapter 1 and verse 41, remember where we first meet Andrew? First thing he does is he goes and gets his brother Peter to come and see Jesus. In John 1, 41, he saw the importance of bringing others to Christ. You think about that, without Andrew, there might not have been a Peter. Andrew, early on, went and got Peter. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 3, he's among those who are sitting with Jesus across from the temple and talking about all the construction. And they began to ask Jesus, what are you talking about when you would said there's not going to be a stone left on another stone? We're told in Mark 13 that was Peter, Andrew, James, and John that were sitting there having that conversation where he talks about the destruction of the temple. And in John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, in John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, here is a, a telling scene. This is where Jesus is going to feed the multitude. And I want you to look at, at what the text says here. Um, he is testing Philip, it says. Philip, uh, he's testing the, uh, yeah, Philip here. Philip says there's 200 denarii worth of bread. That's not enough to feed all these people. They, they can't have enough. But Andrew, while everybody else is sort of despairing, he brings a lad to him and says, Here's a young man who has five barley loaves and two small fish. What is this among so many? But he's been out looking for resources. We see Andrew bringing people to Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. He brought this young man to Jesus. And we'll see him working together with Philip sometimes in that capacity as sort of an outreach to others. Philip is the next one on the list in Mark chapter 3 there in verse 18. He knew the scriptures well, similar to what uh, Andrew had done. He's bringing people to Christ as well. I want to read in John 1, verses 43 to 46. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. <laughs> Philip had been doing his homework. He had been studying the scriptures and he could see that Jesus is doing what the scripture said the Christ would do. I think we found him. And he went and got Nathanael. And when Nathanael doubts, he says, well, then come with me. <laughs> we'll see Philip, just like Andrew, bringing people to where Jesus is. In John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22, as Jesus is coming into the city and there's this this crowd that's extolling who he is, there are some Greeks there that have come up for the, for the Passover feast and they want to meet Jesus, but they don't really know how to get to him. They're Greeks. They, they're not in the customs of the day. Here's this Jewish man. And so they're trying to find out how to get to him. Well, who brings him? Philip and Andrew. <laughs> they make the connection. It's interesting that they've got the two most Greek names among uh, the apostles as well. But they're the ones who bring these Greek people to meet Jesus. And in John 14, verses 8 and 9, again, you love Philip and you love uh, his desire to understand the things of Jesus. He's reaching out where, where he can't connect the dots. So John 14, verses 8 and 9, Philip says, Lord, 
show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. If we could only see God, Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He wants what's right. He doesn't see what he's got right before his eyes, but he's willing to look. He opens his eyes by faith. And some completely missed Jesus, but Philip was there. What about Matthew, going back to, to Mark 3.18? Matthew, we know as Levi from uh, other contexts as well. He is a tax collector. Jesus calling this man to be among his group was a mistake. <laughs> There's no way this man's going to be helpful to Jesus' cause. I say that jokingly. Jesus did not make any mistakes. He's got this tax collector who would have been hated by conservative Jews, would have been seen as a traitor because he's working for Rome, and yet... Jesus calls him. And I love our account of, of Levi in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus first calls him. I want to read 13 through 17 here. Look at the situation here. Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. There's a lot going on in this short text we have about Levi being called. The first thing I think we need to see is that Levi has got this great desire to have Jesus where he is. Here's a man who's hated normally by the Jews because of what he's doing. Jesus calls him and he obeys and goes. And the very next verse, they're at Levi's house. <laughs> he has put on a banquet for Jesus. How many people in this time especially were sort of following Jesus in secret? A lot of the Pharisees, you've got Nicodemus at this point, perhaps Joseph Arimathea that are secretly following Jesus so they won't be put out of the synagogue. Levi says, I'm not going to follow you in secret. I want you to come to my house. And guess what? I'm getting a bunch of other people to come too. He wanted people to be with Jesus. Who were there? Other tax collectors, other sinners, those who were already following Jesus. Levi said, come on, I'll feed you too. And we find out a couple of verses later, the scribes and the Pharisees are there. <laughs> Levi has opened his house to everybody so they can meet Jesus. There's a great way to get the word out about Jesus. Open your house, have people over. Talk to them about the Lord. Show them what your life looks like as you're serving the Lord. That's what Levi's doing. Some people are afraid to have Jesus in their home. They want to keep Jesus at the church. We need to have him in our home. It needs to be absolutely what our life is about, and other people will see that. Levi's a great example for me in that. The next one we have on the list, I'm not going to go in order now. I want to skip around a little bit because I want to put some together. The next one I want to look at, he is next on the list, is Thomas. Uh, in John 11, we learn a little bit about uh, Thomas. Uh, when Jesus is about to go resurrect Lazarus, there has already been some threats against Jesus. If he shows up in Jerusalem again, their religious leadership doesn't care much for him. And so he's saying, Lazarus has died. This is in uh, John eleven fourteen, And we're going to go to him. Look at verse 16. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> if he's going to go, we might as well go. But you know it's a death mission. He's ready to go. 
He's the doubter. He's the skeptic. That's how we know. That's how we think of Thomas. And yet here, I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but Jesus is going, so let's go with him, even if it means we're going to die. He was afraid. In John 14, he's the one that gives us the opportunity to find out that Jesus is the way because he's the one who asks, well, show us the way. We don't know how to get where you're going. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's doubtful. Are we going to survive if we go to Jerusalem? Now that we're here, how are we going to go where Jesus is going? We, We can't figure out what he's talking about. He's doubtful. And of course, in John chapter 20, as the others have seen the resurrected Lord, Thomas says, well, I'm not going to believe unless I see good evidence. John 20, verse 24. Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. I want to tell you something about how helpful Thomas is to the gospel account. Here's a doubter. Here is a skeptic. That's exactly what I was when I started first reading the Bible. I did not want to believe. And I said, I refuse to believe. Unless you can prove to me, I refuse to believe. This man who refused to believe, who was there, saw something I can't see today. But what he saw was enough. This skeptic and this doubter saw enough to believe. And having that in the gospel account is helpful for me. It helps me recognize there's a lot going on here that these men who were good men, who were honest men, saw that I can't see as clearly today, but I can trust what they saw. It was enough for them to believe Later on, we've got, of course, Luke joining. He's a physician. He saw enough evidence to believe that a man had been raised from the dead and was willing to believe. It's men like Thomas and like Luke that help doubters like me to believe in the truth of the gospel. Going back to Mark 3 and verse 18, we've got one called Simon the Zealot. In some of your translations, mine has Simon the Canaanite, which may help explain a little bit more what's going on. Here's a man who believed the land of Canaan. That's God's promised land, there should be no Romans in here. (laughs) There's no way these men have a right to be ruling over us, and so we're going to overthrow Roman rule. These are zealots. These are terrorists. Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about some who have zeal for God, but not with knowledge. It may be sort of the, uh, the case of Simon the Canaanite. He wants to defend God's cause. In Romans 13, Paul says, if there's authority, it's because God has allowed that to be. (laughs) And so... We may not like it, but we're under authority and we need to respect the authority that's there. Simon the Zealot certainly is not going to do anything for Jesus' cause, and yet he needs the Lord. And the Lord can turn a zealous person who's zealous for the wrong things into a zealous person who's zealous for good things. Ask the Apostle Paul about that. Ask Simon the Zealot about that. A person who is passionate to do what is right, when discovers he's wrong, is going to turn that passion towards what is right. And we see that really clearly with a man like this. God could use his zeal for good once it had been corrected. Bartholomew, James, and Thaddeus, uh, uh, we don't really know very much about them at all. What we really know is that they were all Galileans, 
and they were uneducated and untrained men. We get that information from Luke in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as the angels are speaking to them after uh, Jesus has been taken up. He says, Galileans, why are you still standing here? <laughs> and later on, as the crowd hears them speaking, they say, aren't these all Galileans? So he is someone, these are some one, uh, some men who have come from Galilee in chapter 4, verse 13. I'll read that one a little bit later. But they notice that they must have been with Jesus. These are untrained and uneducated men. These are not people that have come through the, the rabbinical schools. And yet, they have a strength about what they're teaching that is that they can't really explain. But here's the one, perhaps, that seems the strangest. <laughs> Judas is scared. It's interesting to me that in all of the accounts where we have the apostles being called by Jesus, it says who is the one who betrayed him. <laughs> Jesus knew this when he called him close. I've got a friend who's got a, a sermon that he preaches on the mistakes of Jesus. I sort of said that earlier tongue-in-cheek about calling Levi. Many would think, what in the world was Jesus thinking? He called the very man who's going to betray him. In John chapter 13 and verse 18, as Jesus is pointing out who is going to betray him, he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew who he was choosing. Earlier he had said, did I not choose you and one of you is a devil? He was saying this from fairly early on. And Judas was hearing this. It's interesting to me that he's called Judas into his inner circle to, to fulfill that prophecy about someone who is intimate with Jesus being the one who lifted the heel against him. It wouldn't necessarily have to be one of his apostles. Could have been someone from his family. Could have been someone even just from his tribe. And yet it was one of those that he called into the closest possible fellowship. And I believe he did that for Judas' sake. When we look at Matthew 26, verse 75, we see what happens with Peter when he recognizes that he's betrayed the Lord. He breaks out in tears. He is moved to repentance. And later at the end of the book of John, there's an opportunity for him to demonstrate his repentance and to serve the Lord and to be called back in to the commission that, that Jesus had separated him for. But in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5, it's a different story with Judas. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to you? What is that to us? You see to it. He threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Both Peter and Judas knew Jesus. He had called them to be with him. They were with him for more than a year before they went out and preached. Both Peter and Judas were sent out by Jesus to preach to the lost. Both Peter and Judas were serving intimately with Jesus. They were there as Jesus washed their feet on that very night that Judas was going to betray Jesus finally into the hands of the religious establishment. They both knew of Jesus' love and his grace and the power of forgiveness that he had. One of them repented. One of them felt remorse. There's a great lesson in the difference and what's going on in their hearts. But I believe Jesus had Judas so close so that even after the betrayal, even as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he forgave a thief who did not even know who he was before that. He certainly would have forgiven Judas if Judas had come to his feet. We see him forgiving Peter later. 
Judas had every opportunity, but didn't take advantage of it. I said before, Peter's really comforting for me to see a man that God can take from Simon and bring him to a rock. Judas is really frightening for me to see a man who can be in intimate company with Jesus for so long and his heart never be changed to serve. We need to be giving ourselves to the Lord. We need to be with the Lord and allow Him to be with us. When you look at these 12, what in the world was Jesus thinking? (laughs) What kind of a lesson is there for us as we look at these men that He's chosen to be the standard bearers once He's gone? (laughs) They're the ones who are going to take this word out to the world. What a mess. If we were to look at these people as an historian, we would think he didn't know what he was doing, putting together his cabinet of his brain trust. There is no president of the United States that would call these men to be the big guys up on Capitol Hill with him. There is no leader in any country that would have called this. And yet these are the ones that Jesus has called. Well, I want you to think about the first thing we can see. They came to him. (laughs) He called himself those he himself wanted, and they came to him. He had to start with those who were willing to follow. In Mark chapter 4, as he's teaching the parables there, there's great crowds that are listening. He's got the multitudes after him already. And he's teaching these parables, and he talks about this sower, and people think, I thought you said he was a great teacher. He's teaching about plants. What is that? And they leave. But there are some that stick around. And in verses 10 and 11, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. There were those who were willing to go and ask the tough questions. What in the world are you talking about? We want to understand. Give us more. And he did. When we ask, he responds. Ask and it shall be given. Knock and the door shall be open. Seek and you will find. That's a promise from God. And these are the ones who are willing to do that. In John chapter 6, when Jesus spoke of some things that sounded offensive, I want you to eat my body and drink my blood. And so many people decided we can't hear these hard sayings anymore. We were wrong about this guy. In John John chapter 6, starting at verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. These are his disciples, those who had believed, but they couldn't handle the teaching anymore. Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that what you believe? Is he just some great teacher and you just sort of enjoy hearing these great things that he can bring out? Or do you know who Jesus really is? And are you willing to come to him despite what everybody else is going to say about you? Those are the kind of people that Jesus could use. In John chapter 18 and verse 36, I think we begin to get a glimpse at why he's chosen these people. When he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate is amazed that there's nobody there to defend him. In fact, he's not even defending himself. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Peter was learning that lesson during this conversation Jesus is having. He's just been disarmed by Jesus because he tried to fight. But the others didn't. Where are all of Jesus' soldiers? Could have called 10,000 angels. (laughs) 
But he didn't even do that because it's not the nature of this kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. He didn't choose men that were going to make him famous according to the world standard. He didn't choose men that are going to help build him up and create this great kingdom according to the world's standards. In fact, he chose men that weren't going to help him to be popular. Men who were hotheads, who were sons of thunder, who were tax collectors, who were zealots, who were traitors. Those are the kind of people that had come to him. And he chose from those who were close. There was no popularity in having these men, but there was great benefit spiritually. As these men were changed and saw what the power of the word did to them, they'd be willing to take it out to others. The point is, Jesus doesn't call perfect people. None of us is perfect in here. He calls people who desire to be perfected. And those people he can use as they grow and they take this word out to others who need to hear it so much. I said I would speak about Acts 4. Uh, Let's read that text. I just think this is a beautiful thing that these men recognize. Here is the religious establishment. Peter and John and the other apostles have been standing up to them, teaching resurrection when the religious establishment now is Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. They're saying, don't you dare teach about this man in the temple and say he resurrected. That is a lie. That is false doctrine. And they're threatening them. In Acts 4, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> this is where it all started. Jesus called them that they might be with him. They didn't say they realized he had been, they had been sent out by Jesus to preach. That is true, but it's not what they noticed. <laughs> they didn't say they, they realized they could do miracles for Jesus. They might have seen some of those, but that's not what they were saying. They realized they had been with Jesus. I tell you, if anybody knows anything about me, I hope that's what they know. <laughs> if anybody ever says anything to you, I hope what they say is, Carl, he's been with Jesus. <laughs> that's the impression we need to leave with people. That's what Levi was trying to get people to see in his home. That's what these men were sent out to show. First John, he begins by saying, I want to talk to you about the one we know, <laughs> the one we've been with, who is from the beginning. We've been with him. <laughs> We've beheld him. Our eyes have beheld him. We've we've held him in our hands. We are absolutely certain about who he is, and we want you to know what we know. The more we're with Jesus, the more excited we'll be about other people knowing who he is. And the less we're with him, the more it'll feel like a burden if we have to talk about him. Well, somebody keeps saying, I got to go out and talk to people. (laughs) Really? Does it feel like that? I had somebody ask me one time, Does bearing fruit mean that I'm teaching people about the gospel or or does it mean something else? Do I have to teach people about the gospel? I said, well, that, that sounded painful, didn't it, when you said it that way? You should love the Lord so much that you can't help but talk about him and he should be visible in your life. I want to leave you with this text. I think this is so beautiful what Paul says as he describes his life. Paul is an amazing man when you think about just all that he went through. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 if you want to turn there. Look at verses 7 through 10, because I think this really defines what Jesus was doing when he called these men. Paul is speaking about the treasure that he has, which is the gospel. And he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. (laughs) You think about these people that Jesus called. They wanted to be where he was, most of them. (laughs) Judas was the exception. They wanted to be where he was. They wanted to be in his kingdom. They wanted to fight for him because they knew him. They had been with him, and that made them want him even more. (laughs) We should be able to develop in ourselves and in other people a desire to be with the Lord. His gospel brings an abundance. We talked about this responding to God for the abundance he's brought, an abundance of promises for us, these very precious and very high and lofty promises. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you from the work that Satan has done in you and wants to continue doing in you if you will give yourself to him. Will you listen to his call so that you can be with him? In John 4, 23, Jesus told that woman at the well, she was confused. He said, the Lord is looking for people who want to worship him in spirit and in truth. In John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place because I want you to be there where I am. I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. Do you want to be with the Lord? That's what he wants. Will you allow him, if you're already seeking him, you're already serving, will you allow him to mold you and use you to his glory? Peter, that that impetuous man who went from a Simon, a Simeon, it's not a good name in the Old Testament. Look it up sometime. It's not good that comes out of Simeon. He went to a rock. 1 Peter chapter 2, he wrote this for us. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is making something out of us that is valuable to him. So we can worship and offer up uh, these praises to him. And look at verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he wants us to be doing. He wants to mold us to be people that can shine his light and that can sing his praises and that can bring other people out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he's done for you. Would you be willing to help someone else to see what you have seen? (laughs) Let's be with Jesus. Let's go out and let everybody else know how much they need to be with Jesus. Let's preach his message and let's share his message through our lives. If you're not a Christian, that's what we want to help you with today. We want you to come to his life. We want you to, to, to his light. We want you to come out of darkness. He wants to be with you. It's his desire. Some people have this idea that God is standoffish. He is not standoffish and he proved it by coming here through his son to bring you close to him. That's what he wants. James says, if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. It's what he wants. We want to help you to do that. If you are a Christian, but you felt distant from the Lord, you haven't been serving as you should, if you haven't been with him so that you can then share him with others, we want to help you draw near to him again as well. Whatever your need may be, please let it be known to us. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your obedience.